why don't we open our Bibles, everyone, to the book of Second Peter. Book of Second Peter. Our text for this morning will be verses 17 through 18. To establish the context, I'll begin at verse 14. So Second Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. Please follow along as I read. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. May God be blessed by the reading of his word. So, Lord willing, I had planned to make this the final sermon of our study in the book of Second Peter, so I think we can get through it today. And in this text, Peter issues a final... Not, it's less of a warning and more of an encouragement, but also in this is also an explicit instruction. This is not a suggestion by Peter to the beloved. This is actually a command. And those who claim Christ do well to heed it and to believe it and to obey it. According to your bulletin, the title of today's sermon is Guarding and Growing, I think in view of the actual passage. We should add a third element to this. Call it Guarding, Growing, and Glorifying. There's the third one. Guarding, Growing, and glorifying. So I think from this we can gather three specific instructions, three specific encouragements that Peter is going to give his readers in this very important text. Now, it's very hard to put ourselves in the shoes of Peter, right? We can relate to the apostles in certain ways, but the fact is, is that most of us and most of those who came before us never found themselves at the edge of the Roman blade, Most of us will not find ourselves in such a situation, be that a Roman blade or an American one. But in Peter's case, he faces, as he mentions earlier in this letter, an imminent death. And so he writes this with the view of a person who is about to go to execution. He says in the beginning of, or in the middle of chapter one, he says, Therefore, verse 12, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. What that means is that he is going to die, and he has indicated that Christ has made that clear to him. And so, one of the main themes of this book of Second Peter is reminding them, calling to mind things which he says uh, we already know. Okay. Now, most of us bristle against that. We have a hard time humbling ourselves and being reminded of things. Some of the most elementary things. Oh, we, we, I know. We, you know, we, we try to get, someone tries to encourage us and we say automatically, well, I know that. Well, I'm not telling you because you don't know. I'm telling you. I'm reminding you because you do know. It is so helpful for the Christian and for the church at large to be constantly drawn back to the to the most elementary basic things of the Christian faith. 
Among them is the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Some of the most basic fundamental truths. The foundational truths upon which the entire body of the Christian faith is built. And so it takes a humble heart to be willing to be reminded of those very simple things. That God is with us. That God is faithful. That God cares for us. And I think even in this part of the letter, if you go back to verse 17 of chapter 3, to know that we are God's beloved. Especially when we're going through intense trial. Especially when we're going through intense persecution. One of the most fundamental things we may call to question is whether or not God actually cares for us. And so again, understand how Peter is thinking. He is about to die. His departure is imminent. And so if you had an opportunity to encourage Christians, if you had even half of the shepherd's heart that Peter has, you would at least wonder if you were about to die and you knew it was coming soon, you would ask yourself, how can I encourage other believers? How could I encourage the beloved in Christ? And I think Peter here says three very simple things. He, he, he names three very simple and yet basic, fundamental, necessary encouragements for the church. Now, he's been doing that throughout the book. He has said many encouraging things. But once again, we're drawn back to this fact that Peter is going to die very, very soon. And so he leaves off the letter in this way. First of all, he says, you therefore, beloved, reminding them of who they are. See, when you're going through, again, various trials and temptations, probably the most important thing you can do is remind yourself of who you are in Christ. Not all the wonderful things you've done in the name of God, not all the amazing ways you have persevered. The starting place is who you are in Christ. That you identify with Him and that you know that you are the beloved of God. That points our, to our covenantal relationship with Him. points to the very fact that Christ, in His grace, laid down His life for us. Made atonement for sins. The just dying in the place of the unjust. Why? So that He might bring us to God. And so here we are. Here we stand. In grace, by faith, as God's beloved. And so we can always remind ourselves of that. It is hardly ever redundant or inappropriate to remind ourselves that God in Christ loves us. It's not that we love God. It is that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So let that fundamental truth always guide, guard, and encourage you. So beloved, what does He say going on in this? He says, knowing this beforehand. Therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. So note that this very part of this text, knowing this beforehand, is going to oversee, it is going to undergird everything that comes after this. Being on guard, right? growing, glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ, is all going to stem from this. Stem from a true knowledge. Stem, stem from this knowing beforehand. See, note that we do not guard our, 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 ourselves. We do not guard the truth without knowledge. We do not grow in grace and knowledge without Knowledge without knowing beforehand. We do not glorify God in ignorance. We glorify God with knowledge. We bring glory to Jesus Christ knowing. Knowing that He is worthy of that glory. And so we can break this text down going forward. I'll give you all three of these instructions from the get-go. The first is this. Again, keep, keep in mind the context. Keep in mind the heart of Peter. He's about to die. So what are these... Three encouragements he leaves us with. They're very basic. The first is this. Guard the truth of Christ. Guard the truth of Christ. Secondly, 
grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Just like the text says. And thirdly, and this will come from uh, the last part of verse 18, is simply this, glorify Christ. So we have guarding, growing, and glorifying. So all of these things stem from this knowledge that we have. Again, not a, not a human knowledge, not a human wisdom, but a knowledge that comes from God. A knowledge that is that comes to us through God's Spirit, through divine revelation. Not something that we can seek out on our own. God must reveal it to us. And yet it is this knowledge, this foreknowledge, as Peter literally says, that will serve to serve as the seedbed, basically, for all three of these things. But just know that. We don't do any of these things in ignorance. We do them with knowledge. Now let's go back to the text. Get these uh, more introductory matters uh, resolved. So he says this, knowing this beforehand. So this, this knowing that he calls to our attention, this knowing beforehand is a deep abiding knowledge, an ongoing consistent knowledge, not something that we are prone to forget. Nor is it elementary. It's not an elementary knowledge of things. When Peter says here that you know these things beforehand, he is talking about things that they have been thoroughly schooled in, things that they are matters of which they are thoroughly aware. Right? These people have been in the church for some time. They've heard the gospel. They've been introduced to, to Christ and all of his, his, his lordship and his saving work. And more specifically, what they are aware of beforehand, what they know very clearly is that men, if you look at the last, the last passage starting at verse 14, there's another therefore there. And he says, since you are looking for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And then he goes down. After he says, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, he talks about certain people who perhaps at one time or another have actually claimed saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and yet he says that they have taken the writings of Paul, that is, Paul the Apostle, writings which Peter regards as inspired, as actual Scripture, as the Word of God, and he says, men which are untaught, who are untaught and unstable, right? They're wishy-washy, they're indecisive, their, their faith truly isn't grounded. And he says they're untaught. They may, though they may claim to be educated, they are actually uneducated. They are ignorant in the most important things. That is the knowledge of Christ. True and saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he says they take the Word of God, all of it, not just Paul, but the rest of the Scriptures, and they twist it. They twist it. They make it say what they want to say. And of course, we can't get every detail involved in twisting, but we know that instead of cutting it straight, as Paul instructs Timothy, they take it and they twist it and mangle it essentially to say what they wanted to say, what they want it to say. So that they can justify any form of lawlessness and apostasy. So we see the, the, the underlying motivation of their heart. And it also warns us against twisting scriptures on any level because what they're doing, they're saying, oh, what Paul has written is very difficult. Difficult, you mean unclear? Well, if it's unclear and I don't really understand it, then I don't really have to obey it. And we understand that some scripture is more difficult to interpret than others. But that gives us absolutely zero grounds to then go to other texts and then make them say what we want to. And of course, that remains a fundamental problem with the church today is that we have scores, perhaps hundreds or thousands of churches through, throughout the world where, and I think we mostly find this in the pulpit, where the Scripture is twisted so that we can make it say whatever we want to say. So that we can tailor our message to our own desires and then, of course, 
tickle the ears of those who are untaught and unstable, and of course lead many astray. It was a problem then, it is a problem now. And so Peter reminds us that you know this beforehand, and you know the judgment that is going to befall them. They won't get away with it. They twist it to their own destruction. They think that there is some benefit to be reaped from twisting the Scriptures, when in fact it will only result in condemnation. That is their end. They will be destroyed. And so he says, you therefore, knowing this beforehand, says you, you know, this is a, a deep, intimate knowledge. This is the same word used in Romans 8.29 to speak of those whom God foreknew. Right? It's a deep, intimate knowledge, not merely knowing it beforehand. It's something that you are intimately familiar with. That they, they know the truth. In fact, in many places, Peter says, I'm reminding you of, of what you already know. This same thing was on the heart of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Timothy 2.14, he says, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to, listen, listen to this, wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. So Paul is, is addressing the exact same problem that these churches are enduring. They are they are wrangling. What does wrangling mean? They're twisting. They're mangling the word to make it say something that they may think will do no harm or, or will even bring a great blessing. And yet, it leads to the ruin of those who keep listening to. And so Peter turns his attention to this very same concern. And he's writing to the beloved. Right? And we think we read this verse already, but in verse 12 of chapter 1, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. But note this. He says, you not only know them, but you have been established in the truth which is present with you. So this is a knowledge that established that, that, is, that establishes people, right? Establishes people in the truth. They are well acquainted with it, and it's not just a passing, a, a passing fancy. It's not just a, a word um, uttered at one point or another. These are things that they have been thoroughly schooled in. And so what, is this, what does this mean for them? What is this foreknowledge, this knowing beforehand? I think, we can, I think we can know that it is a knowledge without fear. We know these things so that we will not be afraid of what befalls us. This is a knowledge without fear, without a fear of man, without fear of what man may do to me. Rather, we fear God. Secondly, we could say that this is a knowledge without compromise. That is, we do not put aside the promises of God because everyone else around us falls into unbelief. Right, Because people around us are somehow derailed because others want to twist the Word of God to their own ends. So it is a knowledge without compromise. And thirdly, and I think this perhaps is the most profound point of this knowing beforehand, is that it is really a knowledge without excuse. They know enough to be out without excuse. They have heard the truth. They have known it all along. It is known that they have made public proclamation of Christ. It is known that they follow Him, that they have heard the Word. I mean, this is a person that is as conspicuous as Peter by the fire. Though he is in the, though he is in the dark, the fire is lit, he is recognizable. Oh, I know you. You were with Him. You've been with Jesus. I mean, even you, you speak like a Galilean. You're totally this guy. It's without excuse. There's nothing we can say to God to plead ignorance that would be justified in light of the fact that Peter's hearers knew all of these things beforehand. Even Peter was told beforehand, and the Olivet Discourse, we went through that pretty thoroughly in some places. In Matthew 24, when Jesus is, is, is uh, 
warning his disciples that all these things are going to happen. Nation rising against nations, you know, false prophets abounding. He says, see, I have told you ahead of time. I've told you ahead of time. You are without excuse. And you can warn others that these, these things are going to happen. So note how this knowledge undergirds everything and leaves us without excuse and without compromise, but also, blessedly, without fear. You do not need to fear man. So, let's go through these points. Let's go through this guarding the truth of Christ. Let's look at the text again. Knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. So we guard the truth, right? Peter talks about the error of unprincipled men. This is doctrinal error and, of course, the error of conduct. You have bad teaching, you are going to engage in bad behavior. Right? That, that behavior is always going to follow doctrine. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, but so we know that from the very teaching of our Lord. So he says, be on guard. Or in other words, take care of that. Take care of that. Pay careful attention. Much of the Christian life is guarding and tending and taking care of things. Guarding because those things that have been given to us by God are precious. They are gifts of His grace. They are meant to establish us. They are meant to protect us against the wiles of the enemy. They are meant to call us to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. To help us persevere through every trial and temptation. So in that sense, we are on guard. We are also on guard, of course, so that we do not lose heart. So that our faith does not fail. In Luke 12.15, we're reminded of this. Then He said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Let me tell you, one of the things that seem to walk hand in hand with counterfeit gospels <clears throat> is a promise of abundance, right? Of material abundance. That God wants to make you rich. God wants, God wants you to live in a, in a huge mansion. God wants you to drive a Lamborghini. God does want, does not want you to have any want ever at all. That basically everything your eyes look upon, that God wants you to have it. And you deserve it. It's one of the lies. And so, of course, that is sure to cause greed. And the Lord says, be on your guard, right? Guard, guard your heart against those things. You know, we guard, we guard the truth. We guard what has been passed down to us. In 1 Timothy 6.20, Paul is reasoning with Timothy. He says, oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Same word. And what does he say? Avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. So there's that empty chatter, right? Things that are just hollow as bone, there's no substance to them. There's no, there's no truth that grounds you. There's nothing that equips you for the work of the ministry. They're simply arguments. And though they may, 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 be, may, though they may sound wise and, and deep, it's falsely called knowledge. It's not real knowledge. It doesn't lead you into a deeper knowledge of Christ. It does not help you grow. So guard that truth. Guard what has been entrusted to you. And of course, that same command is handed down throughout the ages to us. We also are called to guard the truth. We preserve it. We proclaim it. But we do not compromise it. We don't mess with it. We uphold it. And listen to what Paul also tells Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.12, he says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until this day. So why are we able to guard anything at all? Well, we are able to guard precisely because 
we are committed to the care of Christ. Christ guards us. It's the only reason we are even able to persevere in guarding the truth. Because ultimately, Christ has us in His caring hand. Note what Jesus says in His high priestly prayer, John 17, 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in Your name which You have given Me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. I mean, note that. Note what is in the background and even the foundation of this very instruction. Why can the Christian guard the truth? Why is it that the Christian can be on, why can we be on our guard without fear so we're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men? It is because we have been given to Christ and He guards us. This guarding of the disciples, I surely don't think Christ would guard them and not all whom He has called to Himself so that He would be their good and faithful shepherd. And that is why with Paul we can rejoice in 2 Thessalonians 3.3 knowing that the Lord is faithful and that He will strengthen and protect us from the evil one. See, we are in the, under the guardianship of Christ and so therefore we can also guard what has been entrusted to us because ultimately it's been entrusted to Jesus Himself. And so why do we guard this? Well, we guard for a particular reason. So that we are not carried away. We, so that we are not we are not carried away, that we are not swept away, as it were, by the error of unprincipled men, by their lies, by their deceit, by their empty promises. And, and, and the way this word is communicated, there's an urgency to it. He's saying, not only don't be carried away, but don't be carried away even once. Don't let it happen at all. Don't let that kind of compromise come into your life. Because for, for, for many of us, once is all it takes when you flirt with apostasy, when you flirt with, with the empty promises of false gospel, sometimes all it takes is once. And then you're in full-blown unbelief. We talked last week about the, the, the de- deconstructing our faith, right? We call, we, where we start questioning everything. But what, what often ends up happening is that we end up completely rejecting Christianity. That is to be carried away. Of course, we want to be on guard against that. We don't want to swim with the current of unbelief. Because though we, though we may look at the water and say, oh, it's perfect for swimming, what ends up is we get swept away by it and then we end up drowning. Sometimes the current is much more violent and quickly moving than we at first assume. But he says, do not be carried away by it. Not even once. Do not allow that compromise to come into your heart. We see the, the devastation of this um, uh, Andrew mentioned it in, in Sunday school this morning. It's a great illustration for this being, being carried away that in, in, in the book of Exodus, this very word carried away is used to describe Pharaoh carrying his army away to chase after Israel. And you know what happens. See, this is, this is sort of an, uh, an example of groupthink, right? One person leads and then everyone else goes along with it. We are, you know, we are the collective, right? We all agree with this. Surely we're not wrong. Surely we cannot be stopped. And so they are all carried away at once. And then what happens to Pharaoh and his once mighty army? His army is completely destroyed, swept away. No doubt to their surprise and shock and shame, they are swept away by the waters of the Red Sea. And what is so, what is so ironic, what is so painfully ironic about this is that the text had already described Egypt in ruins. You think about that, 
God had already tooled them. He had already put them down. And yet still, still after an utter defeat, a shameful public defeat of Pharaoh and all of the gods, pretty much the pantheon of Egypt had been laid waste by the true and living God, still rounds up 600 chariots, his army, and they go after intent on killing the people of the God who just laid waste to them. It's sad that people that are carried away have hardened their hearts to the point where even though danger is screaming, it still is not enough to dissuade them, to turn them around so that they repent. No, they are carried away to destruction. So this being carried away is a, is a group activity, being caught in a current, the current often of popular opinion, but ultimately, though, it is, though the question is asked, what harm could come of this? How could we lose? They are swept away by a raging torrent, ultimately of God's judgment. And yet we are the beloved. We are not called to be swept away, right? We have an anchor for the soul called hope. Hebrews 6.19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. This hope is such that we can be in the very presence of God. And those who are carried away, it is revealed with stunning clarity that they are not anchored in the hope of the gospel. See, those who are anchored in hope will never be finally swept away. We will cling to God even though conventional wisdom may shout the opposite. It's amazing. It's the same thing. It's that mindset of Pharaoh. Pharaoh seen as divine, as a representative of God, and today we kind of do the same thing. We see ourselves of, as, as our own Pharaoh, right? Master of our destiny. We are ultimately gods. We worship ourselves, and we ultimately believe in our, in our unbelief that we will win, and yet God eventually has His way, and He will put down all rebellion. And it's amazing that in that judgment, from a human point of view, we see people doing it to themselves. They are carried away. Carried away from what? He's, it gives us a clearer view of what is being guarded here. He says, do not be carried away from your own steadfastness. See, we've talked a lot about growing firm versus standing firm. First Peter is all about standing firm. Second Peter is all about growing firm. Right? We continue to be strong. We continue to root ourselves and to be established in the grace of Christ. And so as we stand, we grow, we strengthen. So he says, don't be carried away from your steadfastness, from your own secure standing. And the way even that Peter renders this speaks to a personal ownership of this steadfastness. From your own. So that this is something that has been given to you. right? If you are truly secure in Christ, Take ownership of it. It is a personal possession. It is a gift of God's grace to you. Treasure it. Guard it. Nurture it. Pay attention to it. It's the same encouragement that Paul gives the Corinthians at the, at the end of this. It's one of the most beautiful chapters in all of Scripture. I would say even rivals Romans 8 in its beauty. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he goes on this wonderful presentation of the Gospel and all that it will accomplish with culminating with death being swallowed up in victory so that even death itself is taunted. And he says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable. Right? Steadfast and immovable. But then he says this, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So, so steadfast and immovable doesn't mean motionless. It doesn't mean that we are inert. But we are always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, there's that important word, knowledge, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. 
Though it may seem that way sometimes. We want to see fruit. We want to see results. But rest assured, your toil is not in vain. You will reap a harvest, Paul tells the Galatians, if you do not give up. So don't give up. Do not fall from your own steadfastness. And what's the catalyst of this, he says? By the error of unprincipled men. So there is a way. There is an example set that is followed that leads one to fall from their own secure standing, if indeed that would happen. And it says, by the error of unprincipled men. This is precisely why we can't claim ignorance. You will not fall from your own steadfastness by the error of unprincipled men unless you start paying attention to the error of unprincipled men so as to see them as an example to be followed. That's how you fall from it. These errors are profound. The same word is used in Romans 1.27 when it talks about men abandoning the natural function of the woman and burning in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. You know, Second Peter also talks about Balaam. And Jude 11 talks about the error of Balaam. What was the error of Balaam? It was leading Israel into two things primarily. Sexual immorality and idolatry, which is the very error that Peter is confronting. And I would also say the very error that we are confronting today. All kinds of sexual, sexual immorality and, of course, idolatry. And I would say the big god today of idolatry is Molech, and we sacrifice our children to Molech daily, whether metaphorically or literally. But beware of this error. Even Jude 11 says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong. Rushing headlong. That I need to get there and I have to put everything aside so that I can get there as fast as humanly possible. There is an urgency here in the mind of the person who is going into sin. They have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. As if they're leaning forward while crossing the finish line. And of course, they perished in the rebellion of Korah. And so Jude, Jude, along with Peter, is warning the saints of all of these things. Of this deep and grave spiritual apostasy. By the error of unprincipled men. And of course, this error is not innocent. And it's usually not done in ignorance. It is error done on purpose. It is error done, I think in this context, with knowledge of the Gospel. With the knowledge that one who is saved by grace through faith is called to a life of purity. Is called to a life of faithfulness and holiness. To consecrate themselves as they live life before the living God. And so this error is not committed without devastating consequences. Without an end of destruction. And so, of course, this word unprincipled. In 2 Peter 2.7, we see this example of Lot. It says, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. We understand this world unprincipled. I think sometimes we, we hear principles and we think of like a bullet list, right? Seven principles to, to wealth. Seven, seven principles to, to happiness, right? Seven principles to a successful marriage. Think of it in the opposite way. Unprincipled. This is sort of a qualitative term, unprincipled, referring to, to those who are lawless. Right? And you even look at the, you look at the, the, the response of Lot that he was oppressed, right? But there was a weight on his own heart when he witnessed the, the, the unprincipled behavior of these wicked men of Sodom. And so the view we get here from being unprincipled is more than lawless. It is something that is disgusting. It is something that elicits a response of personal disgust, as if we are grossed out by sin. 
a, a, a 21st century word is cringy. This is cringeworthy behavior where you just, you see it or you hear about it and you wrinkle your face because it is that disgusting. It's cringeworthy. And yet we are reminded also, I, I've been, been meaning to read this scripture up here, especially in light of what we've been going through, but we are reminded that in spite of their error, in spite of their lawlessness and their unprincipled behavior, in spite of the fact that they may be, in a, from a human point of view, they may be succeeding in their lawlessness and unprincipled behavior, we are warned or we are given clarity as to what is going to befall them. Now in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8-9, through 9, we read this, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. And of course, the context is, is, the, is the prevailing onslaught of lawless behavior leading up to the return of Christ. So it's just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, right? Unprincipled men, lawless men, rejected in regard to the faith. But now listen to verse 9, because this, this, is, this is a light, right? This is, this is hope for the Christian and it reminds us that our labor is not in vain. It says, but they will not make further progress, and for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus's and Jambres' folly was also. So note this, regardless of what your eschatology is, if you believe that, that the context of 2 Timothy and the rise of lawless men refers to the second coming at the end of time, ushering the eternal state, or if you believe that it is a more uh, local view, AD 70, collapse of Jerusalem, regardless... This same truth applies, is that these lawless men will not succeed, right? So Janus and Jambres, in opposing Moses, were ultimately opposing God. So that when lawless men oppose us who stand for the truth, right, they're not ultimately opposing us. They're ultimately opposing the Lord Jesus Christ. They're opposing His gospel. They're opposing His righteousness. And so though, though they may come with great eloquence and great power and great authority, Right? Note Janus and Jambres. We are led to believe that these are the same men in Exodus who were able to, for a time at least, replicate the miracles of Moses. And yet, ultimately, they were brought to shame. Their folly was made obvious to all. And I think this, this definitely happened when Jerusalem was sacked, that the folly of this this apostasy of these false gospels was made clear. But there was no redemptive value in it. That one could not stand apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And it was a public testimony to that. And I really believe that as redemptive history goes on, we're going to see this repeated in cycles. And I think we've seen it many times even before leading up to now. And we're going to continue to see it. That though godless men may seem to prevail for a time, that though they may get their way and they may murder Christians who stand faithful. They will not make further progress. What does that mean? They will not win, friends. They will not win. And their folly will be obvious to all. As the Gospel continues to be proclaimed and believed, and the power of God is revealed among the nations, the folly of unbelief, especially the folly of those who propagate it, the preachers of false Gospels, will be seen in all of their folly, in all of their ridiculousness. And they will be a byword in history. Those who took their stand against Christ and were put down, that they will be seen ultimately as losers. I say this to encourage you that, yes, many times, and I think we face this day now, it may seem that evil is prevailing. Evil is winning. Every kind of perversion to the nth degree, and you wonder, where is this going to stop? And yet, 
by the grace of God, it will be turned on its head. I think it will be stopped when we finally see the folly of it. When we finally see the folly and the logical conclusion of those who reject God. Of those who reject the created order. Of those who reject the commands of the Gospel. Don't fall into that category, by the way. But this is definitely a challenge for us, and of course we don't want to be caught in the midst of compromise. It's a great quote by E.M. Bounds that I found uh, this week, and I sometimes wonder if, if either if we fall in either of these categories. But listen to what he says. Nothing perhaps can be more detrimental to the advancement of the kingdom of God among men than a timid or doubtful statement of revealed truth. Now pause. What are we guarding here? We're guarding the truth. And guarding it means proclaiming it. Going on. The man who states only the half of what he believes stands side by side with the man who fully declares what he only half believes. No coward can preach the gospel and declare the whole counsel of God. So some people say everything yet with an unbelieving heart, and some with a, a, an apparently believing heart only tell half the truth. And yet both are cowards. We, we have need of men, and I would say even women, but especially men who will step up and lead, men of preaching the gospel with a whole heart and telling the whole counsel of God. Just as Paul did, as is described in the book of Acts, that he never failed to preach the whole counsel of God. That means, of course, presenting a gospel, listen to this, a gospel that can't be twisted. Right? You tell the whole counsel of God, it is hard to twist it. Even because you're giving the hard parts too. We're not just saying that, that God loves you, right? We're not just saying that God sent his son to die for sinners. We're telling people that those who remain in their sins will suffer the wrath of God, will be destroyed. That's hard teaching. But we tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And we need men who believe that fully and who do not compromise it. We need full faith and the full gospel. That's what we need these days to resist and advance beyond the gates of Hades. And then he goes on. So he's telling us, in a sense, what not to do. And then he tells us, okay, positively, don't do, th- don't do this, but do this, right? We just found out the Christian life is not inert, right? It's not only about guarding, it's not only about protecting, but it's also about growing. So that's, remember, the third instruction is that we grow in grace and knowledge of Christ. So we guard the truth of Christ unwaveringly, and we also grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So let's look at the text again. Verse 18. This word grow, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, is actually brought up in Acts 4 four times, and all, all, all occurrences point to a growing church. That this holy gathering of the people of God is constantly growing. It's the word used in Mark 8 of seeds falling onto good soil that they grew up and increased and yielded a crop that produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. We want to see this growth. Growth is not optional for the Christian. In some sense, you grow or you die. That's the same thing that happens to churches. Churches typically grow or they die. But it's the same thing with the individual saint. But he's telling all of these Christians here, all of the beloved, grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told in 1 Peter how that is accomplished. In 1 Peter 2.2 it says this, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect 
to salvation. It's not that we're becoming more and more saved as time goes on, but it's that the very implications of Christ's saving work continue to grow and expand and pervade all of life. That we are able to view all of life through the lens of Christ's redemptive work. And all of its justification, sanctification, glorification, everything that that entails, we do so by the pure milk of the Word of God. Uh, A good illustration supplied to me yesterday was boots that are too big. We got boots. We got the, think of the armor of God, right? The boots of the gospel of peace. We step into them. Yeah, they may, they're big shoes to fill. We may not know how to walk around in them. We may be clumsy with it. But as we grow, we grow to fill those shoes to a nice, firm fit so that we're not falling over, so that we're not twisting our ankles, so that we're not bringing harm to others. The shoe does fit, but they must be grown into. Listen to what John Gill says about this. There is such a thing as growth and grace. In this sense, every grace, as to its act and exercise, is capable of growing and increasing. Faith may grow exceedingly, hope abound, love increase, and patience have its perfect work. And saints may grow more humble, holy, and self-denying. This is indeed God's work to cause them to grow, and it is owing to His grace. You think about that as a, as, as a, as a mindset for the Christian. If we're going to grow in something, we want to grow in grace. And we think about what grace is, right? God's unmerited love and favor toward us. Any growth we do is with respect to that. It's, it's reminding ourselves that every good thing comes from God and not from ourselves. We have nothing that we can boast about save boasting in what Christ has done for us and what God has given and is giving in us. It says grow in grace. Grow in not only grace, but in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're called to grow in these primary things. And of course, these are themes that have been prevalent throughout the book of Second Peter and are totally appropriate to close this. So what does this mean? Growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? We can take them apart, talk about them one, you know, one after the other, but think of this collectively, grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This means that we are growing in grace and knowledge of a specific kind, right? There is a quality to this. That is the very quality of Christ. And what this reminds us of is that it's growing in knowledge of, of, of Christ is more than simply getting to Christ, getting to know Christ better, right? It's, it's more than simply knowing more facts about Him. This is a knowledge that is sourced in Christ. This is a grace that is sourced in Christ. And yes, of course, we'll know more about Him. But this grace and knowledge that Peter speaks of is a knowledge that points to and is grounded in Christ, right? That is, we see Christ as the source of knowledge and grace. It's like what Paul says, it's a, it's a common scripture that we look to Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's a knowledge that is taken captive by Christ. It is a knowledge that falls under His authority. It is a knowledge that falls under His revelation. So you see the difference there. It's more than simply knowing more about Jesus. It's more than simply becoming closer to Jesus. It is seeing that everything we know, all knowledge, all grace, finds its source in Him. And I believe the reason that that is important in this context 
is because it is clear that there is a counterfeit grace. There is a grace being taught that leads to lawlessness, that leads to sensuality, that leads to licentiousness. There is a grace not found in Christ. There is a knowledge, a so-called knowledge, that is not found in Christ. A knowledge that does not come under His authority and, and, and love and wisdom. And that's why He says, in light of all of this, grow in the grace and knowledge of which Christ is the very source, the very foundation. All other, gra- all other grace and knowledge that does not come under the authority of Christ is no grace and knowledge at all. That's why Paul warns Timothy in chapter 6 of his first letter to him, right? Opposing arguments, what is falsely called knowledge. There is knowledge and then there is knowledge. Be on your guard against it. And of course, we, we do these things so that we do know Christ more. So that we are more gracious, right? As believers, we want to see everything through the lens of Christ. And I believe, I mean, imagine the work that that does and accomplishes within the church. That we develop a culture of grace, right? Rather than boasting in our own accomplishments or rather than a culture of self-righteousness. When we have a culture of grace, we understand that everything we have and everything we are and everything that we are becoming comes from nowhere but God. Comes from nowhere but Christ and Christ's work within us. Growing in grace understands that we must decrease and that Christ must increase. But to grow in grace is to understand that it is all of grace and that everything comes from God. Growing in a grace and knowledge firmly established in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So you see what grace and knowledge, grace and knowledge truly understood point to the reality that Christ is both Savior and that He is also Lord. And I think there's a, dis- there's, I think there's a serious disconnect even in today's church that we are content to receive a Christ who will save us from the flames of hell. But we are discontent at this idea of Christ being Lord in every area of life. That He is King. That He is in charge. That He is the boss. And that when He speaks, by His power, we obey. See, if we truly are under grace and if we truly know Christ, we understand Him Again, in His totality. We don't seek to divide Him. We take Christ in all that He is. Not leaving by the wayside the things about Him that are difficult. But we are called to grow in this grace. So we grow. We grow constantly. Right? We grow constantly and consistently. We are always attending to this work of building in grace and knowledge. Right? So we grow constantly. We are attentive to it. Like we would caring for any other plant. We water it, right? We get, we give it sunlight. We put it in good soil and we give it time. And then God gives the increase. So we grow constantly. We also grow mightily. To grow constantly is to grow mightily. That we are, we are not growing up to be weaklings in Christ. We are call, we are, we are growing to be mighty in Him. To proclaim the gospel with, with power, with strength, with backbone, being strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Here's a third one. We grow recognizably, right? Your growth in Christ should be unmistakable as we come to be conformed to His image so that we reflect His goodness, right? His grace, His knowledge. There shouldn't be any confusion 
as to where our loyalties lie, as to whom we love, as to whom we have trusted our very lives to, should be recognizable. That we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the power of the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, we are to grow fruitfully. We are, we are called to bear much fruit. That's why Christ called His disciples. He said to them, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That it wouldn't be bad, rotten fruit. That it would be good, robust, obvious fruit that would bring nourishment to others. We, if we are truly growing, we're not just growing foliage. We are growing fruit. And all the fruits of the Spirit so that we resemble Christ. So those are the first two. Okay, let's go through the last one. Okay, we talk about guarding the truth of Christ, growing in grace and knowledge of Christ. And of course, number three, we simply are glorifying Christ. So guarding, growing, glorifying. Let's see his final doxology here. To Him, I think that's none other than Christ, to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So it's, there's no mistake as to what this all is for. Why do, we, why do we guard? Why do we grow? Why do we persevere? The obvious answer, and it sounds vanilla, but I don't want it to ever be unimpactful to us. I never want us to throw around the word, oh, God be glorified, Christ be glorified, I want to glorify Jesus, and, 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 not have, and have it not have some kind of impact on us. The knowledge of the holy, the knowledge of the glory of God should hit us every time we speak of it, right? In fact, the word in Hebrew for glory means weight. When we speak of the glory of God, there should be a weightiness to it. Not something that we say without passion or without any kind of effect on us. When we speak of God's glory, there should very much be a weightiness to it that causes us to think of His presence and of His goodness. So when we say here that to Him be the glory, that this is much more than, than saying, oh, God gets the credit or that, or that God gets the recognition. Yes, glory to God. Glory to God. There's more, there's more to this, especially in light of what Peter is saying. Think about what is impending. It's not just Peter's death, but it is the coming day of the Lord where Christ will be present in both His deliverance of the saints, but also His devastating judgment on the wicked. So think about what glory means in that context. It is the hope of Peter and the ultimate hope of every saint that when, that when Christ is glorified, that He is seen, that He is recognized as He truly is. In all of His perfections, in all of His rule, in His dominion, all of His authority, all of His grace and loveliness. That is the hope and desire, and I would say the eventual fulfilled desire of every person who claims Christ. Is that He will be recognized as He truly is. See, there's more of it than just, oh yeah, God gets the credit. You know, I scored a touchdown. Glory be to God. I hit the buzzer beater. Glory be to God. I got that promotion. Glory be to God. There's so much more wrapped up in glory than simply that. Where is the weightiness in understanding God's presence among us? Let's not lose that. Let us glorify Christ by recognizing and seeing Him as He truly is. I think we've got a little bit of time here, but consider even what the Old Testament has to say about this. There's, there's a real, really important pattern here that emerges when it comes to God showing up, God being glorified. Going back to this judgment upon Egypt, 
where he tells Moses when he calls him, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That is, that I will be glorified. This is the very goal of God that we're dealing with here. The very goal of God. We talk a lot about our own goals. What is the goal of God in redemptive history? It is to be glorified. It is that all creation would see Him as He is. Now look at Psalm 46.10. Cease striving. I was informed yesterday that cease striving means shut up, stop talking, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. See, Peter echoes that very same desire and intention of God. I will be exalted among the nations. Not just Israel, but among the Gentiles as well. That He would be glorified, exalted, worshipped, loved, believed upon. I will be exalted in the earth. Right there in Psalms, in the middle of the Bible, is God's goal for Himself. And let me tell you, God will never fail to achieve His goals. God will never fail to get what, to get what He wants. And yet God also desires that we would see the, the worth of that. That we would desire of God that which God desires of Himself. That He would be glorified. Same thing in Ezekiel 39. I will set my glory among the nations. This is after the, this is the aftermath of the Gog and Magog invasion that we all love to debate and argue about. But here's the point. I will set my glory among the nations, and the nations will see my judgment which I have executed, and my hand which I have laid on them. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. What was the goal? That Israel would know. Again, a real knowledge. But they would behold their God as He is meant to be beheld. And then Jesus comes around in John 1. They, we have seen the glory, right? Come full circle, made manifest. We have seen that glory. And of course, Jesus sets that very example of bringing glory to God in John 17.4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And so, we follow that example in the power of the Holy Spirit. We glorify God on this earth. And we say, to Christ, to Him be all the glory. That not only will Christ have the glory, but that He must have the glory and of course, with Peter looking to the fact that Jesus is going to appear in power and glory, and that He is going to be given a kingdom, and that He will continue to reign all into eternity, we desire that His glory in all cases, in all ages, be made manifest. So that when Jesus Christ would return in judgment in A.D. 70, that that glory, that power, that manifestation of His glory and power would come to remain. And that is why Peter says, to Him be, be the glory, both now, both now, and to the day of eternity. Amen. That is the desire of all men and women, everyone who follow Jesus Christ. That is our heart's desire. That is the very core of our worship, is a desire that Christ be glorified. No matter what season, no matter what day, no matter what age, whether it be now or eternity, we want Christ to be seen as he truly is, and as He truly deserves to be seen, as Lord, as Savior, as conquering King. I certainly hope that that is our desire, both now and to the day of eternity. And one for one, I'm excited for eternity because we know that there will be, there will be no other voices, right? No other voices raised, but to be, but to be raised in worship of Christ.
and what a day that will be. But for now, for now, we guard, we grow, and we glorify. That's the book of Second Peter. Let's pray. Father, thank you again uh, for your love and faithfulness to us. We, we thank you for, for these dying instructions of Peter, and we know that as you have moved him to, to write your very words, that that truth lives on. And may we have the same attitude. We, 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 may, we may be forgotten, but what matters more than anything is that your word is remembered and that your word takes root in the hearts of your people. And I do pray, Father, especially for this church, on behalf of them, that, that you would give us the strength to, to guard what's entrusted to us, to guard the very truth of the gospel, that we would not deviate from it, even seeing these warnings from the past of those who deviated to their own destruction. Lord, may we be an example to others rather than a warning and walk faithfully. Lord, may we continue to grow, and we've said much about growing in previous studies already, but Peter closes with such an important reminder of that, that we are called to continue growing, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be a people who know you, that we would be a, a people who, who are full of grace, because it is a real grace uh, founded in your Son. Guard us, Lord, from counterfeits. Guard us from a grace which, which causes us to seek after the flesh. Guard us from a grace which makes us think that we can do whatever we want. Guard us from any grace which causes us not to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Guard us from false knowledge. Guard us from knowledge that is useless in pursuing godliness. Protect us from these things, Lord. We, we, we do need that. We can't do it on our own. Lord, at last, help us to glorify You. We long to live for You. We long to delight in You. And we know that sometimes that we can fall into, uh, again, periods of intense darkness where it just seems like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. And yet, Lord, we, we do know that You're with us. You are with us. And I pray, God, that that could be a starting point of encouragement for those in here who are dealing with immense difficulty, immense, immense strain, and, and wondering if they are truly in the faith. Lord, that is when we call upon You especially to, to come and to give comfort and aid and to rescue us uh, from the darkness, to strengthen us, Lord, to, to continue fighting the good fight, even though sometimes we may feel no desire. But once again, it's, it's not feelings that matter ultimately, Lord. It's the truth. And the truth is, you have set us free from sin and death. You have set us free to love and serve You. And You have set us free, God, to, to persevere in righteousness so that because of Your work, we will end up with You in glory. So help us, God, to, to be faithful. Help us have a, a view of Your work, a view of Your presence, that Your glory will be revealed in, among the nations, God, and that we get to be the mouthpiece of that. Knowing, God, that every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. We rejoice in that, and we find comfort in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.